Our first reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 through 8. We see in these verses how the Lord promises to his people the gift of the Holy Spirit and also includes in that the reminder that we are to use our lives in service to God. We are to be his witnesses through the work of the Holy Spirit. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. We continue with the responsive reading of Psalm 143. This psalm is a plea to the Lord for help. And we certainly need help in our lives in many different areas, but we think primarily in terms of our faith. And we remind ourselves on Pentecost here that it's the Holy Spirit that the Lord has sent to help us. We continue responsively with the portion of Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. In your faithfulness, answer me. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Make me know the way I should go. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Our second reading comes from Acts chapter 2 and is a portion of Peter's sermon on that first Pentecost Sunday. And I'd like to note as we read this for you to think about the difference between Peter at the time of the gospel accounts when Jesus was still around and this Peter who speaks and proclaims boldly even though Jesus has ascended and gone into heaven. I think you see not only in Peter's preaching a testimony of the Holy Spirit but also in Peter's demeanor and courage. From Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 39. Moreover, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Dear friends in Christ, we have confidence that every word of God is true and that he's a shield to those who trust in him. This morning we consider God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. This is God's word before us today, and we ask him to bless our study and meditation of it as we consider how the Holy Spirit is our guide. When Gretchen and I got married, we took a honeymoon to Mexico and I remember quite clearly one of the first things that happened when we arrived is they shuttle you, they transport you to the resort or hotel or whatever, and you're immediately, as soon as you enter the door, you're bombarded by all of these tour guides. The resort must 
contract out with certain tour tourism companies and allow them to set up space in their lobby and they can tell when you're someone from the United States coming in and they want to get to you as quickly as possible to show you what they can offer. Now on the one hand, whenever you're in a foreign country, you're not really sure if you're being conned or not when it comes to when you're buying something. But on the other hand, when you arrive from an overnight flight and you're all tired, there is a certain sense of peace in knowing that someone else can take care of the planning. I don't have to try to filter through a bunch of different tourist books or guidebooks and figure out how to get to certain places, but all I have to do is buy a package that I want and they tell me when and where to show up. It's possible, I suppose, that maybe we overpaid a bit on what we did and maybe we could have been a little more efficient if we would have done it ourselves. But when you're in a foreign place, it's good to have a guide. That's really the same thought that Paul is impressing upon us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as he explains the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of theological jargon, we might say, in these verses. Uh, Paul talks about being taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. It makes it sound a bit complicated. But the point here is really very simple. Paul's making the emphasis that when it comes to knowing God, the Holy Spirit is the guide. The Holy Spirit is the one who gets you to the place where you know God and have a relationship with God. And in the very same way that Jesus is the only Savior, the only one who offered up his life for the payment of sins, Paul's making the case that the Holy Spirit is the only guide. There's a few reasons for this in the broader context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to narrow it down to three main reasons why the Holy Spirit is the one guide. Number one, because of sin, we can't perceive God on our own. And God is unlike anything else we've ever experienced in the world. Paul wrote in verse 9, What eye did not see and ear did not hear, what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. So the number one reason why the Holy Spirit's the only guide is because we can't do it ourselves. Paul says you are corrupted by sin, but not only that, you can't even perceive and understand God on your own. Paul here in, that, in verse 9 was quoting from the prophet Isaiah who wrote about this in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah was comparing the true God to the false gods. And obviously, one of the big differences between the two is one is true and one is not. One is powerful, one is hollow. But in the way that God reveals himself, the true God wants to be part of your life. The true God wants to reveal himself to you. The false gods of the world had no understanding or concept of that. It was simply a matter of you do what you're supposed to do and that God will accept you. There was no relationship. There was no revealing. So what Isaiah was describing and what Paul's building upon here is even deeper than just our limitations. He's saying not only are you corrupted by sin and there's an issue there, but God is completely different from anything else the world has ever seen. He's the first God who truly wants to have a connection with you. Second reason, the Holy Spirit knows God and is therefore able to reveal God. Paul writes in verses 10 and 11, Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Does anyone know your personal thoughts and feelings better than you do? No. Because it's part of your spirit. It's part of who you are. And Paul's telling us in that comparison, that illustration, the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. So if you want to be introduced to who God is, if you want to know the real God, it's the Holy Spirit who can reveal that to you. And the third thought is this. The third reason why the Holy Spirit is the only guide is because the spirit of the world is different than the spirit of God. In verse 12 of our text, Paul writes, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God. What Paul means by the spirit of the world is the predominant thought of the day. The most common or majority belief, perhaps about things spiritual, that the world holds. And this spirit of the world can change from culture to culture and from generation to generation, but ultimately it all comes back to really one thing, whether something is built on God or built on ourselves. Today, I think we could all agree the predominant view, the spirit of our world today when it comes to religion or spirituality is very self-focused, very much about the individual. Paul puts it quite cl clearly in these three reasons why the Holy Spirit is the only way to know and believe the true God. The Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit allows us to say what we do in our text, that we have received the things of the Spirit of God, the things that God has freely given to us. Consequently, then, our task from God is to go out and speak those things as well. God wants to use you as someone to reveal himself to other people. Not because you know the mind of God, but because the Holy Spirit has shown you what that is. And all the things that we speak and proclaim come from God's word. So the overall approach here by Paul is very straightforward. It helps us see the emphasis of these verses and why we consider them on Pentecost Sunday. God's simply telling you, this is how you know who I truly am. It also complements what Jesus taught in his ministry. He said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Jesus was telling people the very same thing. He may not have used the title Holy Spirit revealing something to you, but he's telling the people, you search the word of God because you know there's something there. You know it has something to do with spirituality or eternal life. And Jesus says, that's good. And why does it work? Because the scriptures testify about our Savior. And that's what the Holy Spirit's going to be using in our lives. He's going to be communicating to us our only Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that, the Holy Spirit is the only way to receive that by faith. But just as it is important to understand what Paul is teaching here, it's equally important to understand what he's warning about. This section is rightly used as a proof of the Holy Spirit's vital and necessary work in the believer's life, but 
Today, there's not a whole lot of disagreement, at least in Christian circles, about that truth. All Christians believe something about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's working or that he's necessary in some way. But the difference today is how the Holy Spirit works. And as we pointed out already, this is an important topic because what we believe about the Holy Spirit ultimately reflects back to and is connected to what we believe about Jesus. You might know some Christians in your life that recognize that there are differences among Christians about the teaching of the Holy Spirit, about how he works. It's very common to hear people say, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with salvation. That, I, I know what Jesus has done for me. What I believe about the Holy Spirit's work isn't all that important. But Paul has built a case for us that it's directly connected to what our Savior Jesus has done. And so Paul also points out for us in his teaching a warning about two, two primary dangers when it comes to what we believe about how the Holy Spirit works. The first danger that comes to mind is the thought that there's some sort of redeeming quality in me that can connect with what the Holy Spirit's doing. The idea is that while it is true that all people are corrupted by sin, that corruption is not so complete as to limit my ability to accept the Holy Spirit into my heart. As you may realize, this, is, this kind of thought process is really the counterpart to the belief that you can choose to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you can decide that you are going to believe in Him. Ultimately, God says that's not your work, whether it be with your hands through what you do or with your brain or your heart by what you feel or think. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This false teaching is really a subtle form of saying that a person can be justified before God by their works. It's not as blatant as maybe the Reformation time where it, people were being taught that they could literally put money down to get a certificate to heaven. But really, you end up in the same place if you think that it's something of your own goodwill or your own virtue that allows God to accept you. Now, no one today within Christian circles would say it as bluntly as that, but that's really where the thought process leads an individual to. And it's all kind of puzzling because of that, isn't it? If no one in Christianity today would say it as bluntly as you can choose to get to heaven, then why is it something that continues to be taught? One of the answers I think that we can say for that is there's no limit to the persuasiveness of the sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh is corrupted from the very moment of conception. It's tainted by sin. But the Bible tells us that corruption also involves not just straying from God's truth, but wanting to have a part in the good things that God has done too. We all value and cherish as Christians the good things, the blessings that God gives us, but we have to be aware of the danger of our sinful flesh wants to take some credit for that, wants to get some recognition for that. Well, I'll give God most of the glory. I'll give him 90% of the glory. He's done all the major work, but I've got to do something, right? I've got to take some part or effort. 
But what we don't realize about the sinful flesh and we start to think like that is that grows. That pride, that self-glorification, it doesn't just remain the same. It wants more and more and more. And so despite it being a blatant contradiction to God's truth, many people today believe in some part that they can cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. The second danger that Paul talks about is real closely related to that. And it really has become the predominant way that people view the Holy Spirit today. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or non-Christian, inside the church or outside the church. This is really the primary way that people in our culture today think about the Holy Spirit. This thought is that the Holy Spirit speaks directly to me through my feelings, through my intuition, even through my desires. This is an important thing, and it comes up a lot because it's not just about Christianity. It's really something that's in a part of all religions. No matter what type of spirituality you have or what type of religion you have or what type of God you confess, everyone wants to be able to say that they're following the right thing, that they're on the path of the truth. If you don't want to say that, why do you believe what you believe? What happens in this second danger is there's a blending of two very powerful forces that cause us to want to say, I know I'm following the truth because God has told me directly. That first force is the desire to have what we want. In spiritual terms, this is usually a desire for immaterial things. We're not talking about possessions here, a big house, a boat, lots of money. We're not talking about those things. But in terms of our faith, we usually have a desire for what we want in immaterial things too. Maybe having my feelings validated. Never having anyone disagree with me. Not having to repent of sin. Having people align with my goals and desires in life. Never having a belief system or ideology that is presented to me that makes me uncomfortable. These are the immaterial desires that we have, and it's a very strong influence in getting us to point at ourselves and want only what we desire. The second powerful force is that desire to know and believe that what I follow is true. We want this because we want to project confidence to the world. We don't want to say, hey, this is what I believe, and it's really kind of foolish and dumb. We want to project confidence but we also want to have that inner security to know when I'm in need, I have something I can rely on. And many Christians feel this way. And because of that, it's a lot easier to take that shortcut and to build my faith around my personal experiences and feelings rather than around God's word. Because obviously I can connect and relate to my feelings probably a lot easier than I can connect and relate to God. Doesn't Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians here that God is mysterious? We are corrupted by sin. We, we can't always understand where God's coming from. There's always going to be gaps there. There's going to be places where we have to trust by faith and we're not going to have the understanding to know so ourselves. It's a lot easier. It's a big shortcut in terms of spirituality to build my faith around myself. And that can give me the illusion that I'm on the right track because I'll feel it inside. 
Paul's point is that trusting in God's way, in the way that Christ set down, in the way the Holy Spirit works, is not an easy path. But it's the best one. The only one to heaven. These two dangers are presented in our text more subtly than what Paul is teaching directly. But we have to be aware of them today, primarily because our culture and our brand of Christianity in America today embraces these things, especially when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. In reality, Paul limits the work of the Holy Spirit to one central area. I don't want to make you feel bad, but it's not your feelings. It's not your personal dreams and desires in life. It's not your gut reaction. The work of the Holy Spirit is limited to one area, and it comes from one word in our text. In verse 13, speak. Paul says we speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Simply put, God tells us the Holy Spirit works through words. Not feelings, not personal experiences, not my individual agenda that I want everybody else in my life to conform to, even God. Holy Spirit doesn't work through that. And the words that the Holy Spirit works through and the words that we speak are not words of human wisdom, but the words found in God's Word. Now that's a very unpopular belief today. I'm willing to guess that if you enter a majority of churches in our culture today, that's not what they're going to teach you about the Holy Spirit. And like we said, that's not the easy path either. That's not the shortcut. But shouldn't we be thankful for that? Shouldn't we be thankful that the Lord gives us an objective, never-changing foundation as a source of our faith? His Word? Look at everything Paul says about ourselves, just in this section. We have fallen from God's grace and holiness. We cannot perceive or even understand God on our own. Our wisdom is filled with inconsistencies and biases. We actually consider God's will, by nature, to be foolish. Why ever would we want our faith to be built on our own foundation? Well, probably because it's easier. It comes more naturally. It's within our control. We don't have to worry about God calling us to repentance or challenging us spiritually or intellectually if we control everything. And maybe most important of all, if our faith is based on ourselves, it stokes up that inner pride, doesn't it? It gives me one more reason why I can show myself to be better than the person next to me. More spiritual, more religious, even more Christian if it comes back to something about myself. There's no limit to the answers of why with that question. Why would we want it this way? There's no limit to those answers. But none of them fills in the need that we have. And that's really what the work of the Holy Spirit comes down to. It's need. That's really what our faith is all about. It's filling in a need. At some point, or maybe many points in your life, you will encounter need. There may be something that you need that's relatively small in the grand scheme of things, like I need something to eat, or I need help on my math homework. 
but live, live long enough in life and you'll encounter bigger needs. Things like, I need support for my thoughts of despair. I need someone who loves and cares for me. I need relief from the heartache of life. I need help understanding my purpose in life or maybe what will happen when I die. The thing about living in this world is that need will never leave you. And that's why God sent you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the guide. When you're in a foreign place, when you're in an uncomfortable spot, when you don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit is the guide. God has tasked him with getting you safely from the point that you were born here in this world to the point of eternal life in heaven. The Holy Spirit creates faith. He sustains faith. He strengthens faith. He renews you when you disparage faith. The Holy Spirit does all of this in one way, by using the gospel in God's word and in God's sacraments. It's easy. It's simple. It's one way to faith, but it's God's way. And he designed it this way so that when you need help, something that's even bigger than what you might be able to control, when you need that help, you will find it. Paul stated this earlier in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians when he was explaining to the Corinthians why he based his preaching on the gospel. He said this, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When you face the greatest needs in life, the, the greatest being that moment where your life is about to end at death, is there a greater need? When you face that, isn't that what you want? Something that's not about the power of man, but God. In that moment of greatest need, what will feelings do for you? What will the accomplishment of your goals and desires get you? How much personal experience will be able to help you? None of those things can fill in that need. Only Christ. Only Christ is your hope in that moment because only He went through the very same thing and yet lives today. And God's telling you through the gospel, He promises you, He guarantees to you that the Holy Spirit will lead and sustain you in your faith in Christ. And this is the way, even when that way encounters death. When we get down to it, we see the way that the world operates. We see the way that Christianity is today. But what joy there is in what Paul declares in the words of our text. What we know and believe to be true. What we celebrate and remember on Pentecost Sunday. As Paul says, now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit is your guide to lead and sustain you here on earth, but most importantly, to bring you safely home to heaven with your Savior. Amen. Please rise. Rise. Rise.